So at the beginning of this year, we decided to take a few weeks to discuss the principles upon which Calvary Chapel Cardinal were built upon some 23 years ago when we started. And we wanted to show and demonstrate that the principles that we started upon 23 years ago, still to this day, even in the year 2020, are sufficient in supporting the church going forward. We believe that God has outlined for us in His Word the manner in which the church should operate. The study of the church in the Bible is called ecclesiology. It's a technical term, the theological term for it. It's great if you can use it in Scrabble with the triple letter score. And that being said, many do not understand that the church today does not need to be reinvented to remain relevant within our, in our society We need to rediscover the truths in which God had laid down in his word for the church to be built upon and therefore allow him to remain the uh, to uh, consistently remain relevant to the world around us. Today, many churches have indicated that they felt the necessity to reinvent themselves in some way to be more effective in the reaching of people. Unfortunately, when you get down to the details of the manner in which they decide to reinvent themselves, in many cases, that reinventing of themselves is compromising the controversial aspects of Christianity, uh, allowing for and embracing things that the world says is uh, socially acceptable, but the Bible uh, condemns. And in that case, they have just simply weakened the church, and the church therefore becomes uh, further uh, impotent in its uh, progression into the society. And I believe that the reason the church today is uh, becoming irrelevant, and in some cases it is, is not due to the lack of reinvention, but to the abandonment of the truths in which it was supposed to be built on in the first place. I believe that the church doesn't need to reinvent, but to rediscover. And so I thought, since this is our 23rd year of ministry, we would start again this year, 2020, a new decade, by reminding ourselves of some of the simple principles that God had uh, led us to start this church upon, meaning what, uh, what we are going to emphasize and what we are going to be all about. And those principles are laid out for us in a neat fashion in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where I believe the church begins its existence in the world. And there are general principles from this chapter that I think are necessary to examine and to implement within our church because these are the simple principles in which God used to start the church. And I believe that they are as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. But in our study, and as we begin to look at these things more individually uh, and more um, in detail, I do think there's a context that we can place them in that is more suited for 2020. And we'll look at that as we progress. The book of Acts, of course, is a book that was written by Luke. Of course, we're studying the gospel that he wrote here on Sunday mornings, and we'll be back at it uh, shortly. But then he wrote a follow-up, a second volume, and that was the book of Acts. And the book of Acts was to 
record and to demonstrate for a man named Theophilus the work of the apostles after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the work of the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, Acts chapter 2 is by no means a comprehensive study of ecclesiology. Of course, that's laid out through the entire New Testament for us to examine. And Paul specifically, as he's writing to Gentile communities, gives us more details on, of course, how elders are meant to be appointed and and, um, how church discipline is meant to be exercised and uh, how sin is meant to be confronted and so forth. But the general principles of operation, I think, are given to us here in Acts chapter 2. And we begin Acts chapter 2 with the disciples gathered in an upper room at a time called Pentecost. It is 50 days now since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we have now come to the later feasts in Israel, Pentecost being the first of them. Uh, And as the children of Israel gather again in Jerusalem for this high feast, the apostles and disciples of Jesus, numbering about 120, find themselves in an upper room. And they are waiting on God and they are praying and they're asking and, uh, for the Holy Spirit to come upon them since Jesus had instructed them to do so. So let us begin in verse 1 of chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterances." The first principle that I believe that the church of God must be built upon is that it must be a spirit-led church. Now, there is, I believe, no greater controversial subject in the body of Christ than the Holy Spirit. Why do I say that? Because today in our culture, we have, of course, what I call extreme examples of the, the role of the Spirit in each regard, given to us in many churches throughout our land today. And often when you talk about having a spirit-led church, uh, the picture that immediately captures the mind and the heart of the person you're speaking to is unfortunately one of the uh, hyper-Pentecostal charismatic churches where it's simply more a, a circus than a church, let's just be honest. And the Spirit of God is being given the credit for doing all kinds of bizarre things, causing people to laugh uncontrollably for long periods of time. We had a church in the area that believed that when the Holy Spirit came upon their church, the individual members of their church, quote-unquote, became intoxicated with the Holy Spirit, and they actually had within their church, I hate to even say this, what we would call a drunk tank. And people, after being filled and intoxicated with the Holy Spirit, were encouraged not to drive home 
because, again, they were intoxicated with the Spirit and they went to this drunk tank within the church and they sobered up. You know, I don't know if they gave them holy coffee or what, but sobered up to, to allow them to drive home properly. And of course, you, those are extreme examples, and unfortunately, they're examples that are in our area. And then you have others that when you walk into the worship of, uh, of a church, it's just a free-for-all. There's people speaking in tongues and doing backflips over the chairs and laying on the ground convulsing and so on and so forth. And they're just, you know, continuously saying, oh, the Spirit has come upon me, the Spirit has come upon me. One pastor I heard teaching once said that he was invited to a hyper-Pentecostal church and there was an individual uh, outside the church entering into the parking lot and he was pounding his head against the curb. And he says, I can't control myself, it's the Holy Spirit. He goes, well, if you want to pound your head against the curb, that's your idea, but don't blame the Holy Spirit for it. But unfortunately, folks, so many have pictures of a church who claims to be led by the Spirit and they're left with images such as that and you're like, you know what? I want nothing to do with that. I wouldn't want anything to do with that because I do not believe that the Spirit of God manifests Himself that way within the church. And as a result, I believe that people are crediting him with things that of course he's not involved with at all and so many unfortunately have reacted and by by reacting to that they've swung the pendulum all the way to the other side where they really don't really have any sense of interacting with the spirit whatsoever they want to keep him in a nice little box and they you know they they don't want anything that is out of the ordinary to occur uh, in their mind what they would consider ordinary for church and so forth and so they go all the way to the other side and many of them then hold to a cessationist position where they believe all the gifts of the spirit have ceased with the completion of the word of god and are no longer therefore active within the church today And what's really sad is that either one of those positions, unfortunately, in most cases have been determined not on biblical principle, but on personal experience. We here are continuationists. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still active in the church today. And we believe that because of what the Bible says. And Paul's instructions on how the gifts of the Spirit are meant to be used within the body of Christ today. For the edification of the entire body, not the glorification of the personal individual exercising the gift. But a lot of the misunderstanding and confusion comes to the uh, individual due to the fact that they really don't understand who the Holy Spirit is. And to test that uh, theory, you can just go to many websites and look at their statements of faith, and you find when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's very generic. Uh, It's very, you know, there's a ton of ambiguity in their understanding of who He is. But let us remember what Jesus said. Jesus said that it's to your advantage that I go away, that I may send the Holy Spirit to you. Now, I don't believe Jesus would say that unless he meant it, right? 
He calls the Holy Spirit the helper, the paraclites, one who comes alongside to help and to assist. In fact, he tells the apostles not to do anything after his ascension until the arrival of the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and therefore they would have power to be witnesses for him in all the world. No, we need to rediscover the biblical balance of the theology of the Holy Spirit active in the individual and in the church today to truly uh, experience all that God would have us experience. Now, I am not against personal experiences with God as long as they are in the context of the Scriptures. But if they are not in the context of the Scriptures, I have a difficulty giving God credit for that experience. Today, many want to have an experience with God and often leave a church and feel that they have had one, but in actuality, they discover that it was more of an emotional experience than a true experience with the Lord. See, when you have a true experience with the Lord, it's not like feelings that dissipate over time. It's one of those things that is so fixed in your memory that you're like, oh, I I just can't deny that that was God. Every single time in the Bible that an individual has had one of those powerful experiences with God, you never read, you know, two or three chapters later, yeah, that experience with God I had, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, it just kind of wore off, you know. No, it's something that they remember forever, and it often is life-changing to the individual. The Holy Spirit arriving here is the arrival that Jesus promised And as we go back into John's gospel, which we will in just a minute, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus prepares the disciples for the coming of the Holy Spirit, articulating very clearly the necessity for him and what he will do once he arrives. And then Paul picks out on this and he writes to the churches that are in Gentile regions who have never experienced the, the God in this way before and begins to articulate very clearly that the Holy Spirit has come to give gifts for the body of Christ, for the edification of the body of Christ and so forth. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, he gives us the instructions in which they are meant to be applied. I think it's very simple. And one of the verses we take very seriously here is that all things must be done decently in order. Well, pastor, I've been coming to this church now for many, many years, and I've never seen an expression or a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit here on a Sunday morning, and I'll tell you why, probably. We don't believe that the Holy Spirit interrupts the Holy Spirit. And we find that the Word of God though the gifts of the Spirit are there for the edification of the body, it appears that the primary uh, responsibility of leaders within the church was the teaching of the Word of God. So if I'm teaching from the pulpit, I have to believe that the Holy Spirit is working in and through me, and I don't believe that's presumptuous to say that, and therefore a manifestation of the gift, of some gift that would distract from that, wouldn't be in line with what God would have within His Word. But again, if you've been to some of those churches that have been a free-for-all, you can tell that there's so much chaos, you don't know what God is doing. And you don't understand it. And Paul said the same thing. The non-believer is not going to understand it. They're not going to get it. But the teaching 
the proclaiming of God's word. Now that's something that will change people's lives forever. So, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, let us first and foremost understand who he is. We find the Spirit of God mentioned in the first few verses of the Bible, the Spirit of God hovered amongst the waters. We find him in the last verse, towards the end of Revelation also, where the Spirit and the bride say, come Jesus, come quickly. The Spirit of God is not an impersonable force. Obviously, we're a Star Wars culture, correct? And when people think of the Holy Spirit, they often equate the Holy Spirit in their mind to something like the force. And when they want to access the Holy Spirit, they, they, they pull a Yoda, you know. And they feel that they can manipulate this impersonable force to do what they want to do or to manifest or to do something in the name of God and so forth. But the Bible is clear that this is not an impersonal force, but a person. He's always referred to in the proper noun of he. He's always called the Lord. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God. God is three in one. Now, the Trinity, we can talk about at another time. But Jesus said that he would come in the absence of Jesus to empower the church to do what the church was going to be required to do. And Jesus made it clear that apart from him, we can do nothing. So we need to understand who the Holy Spirit is. He is God. He is Lord. Now he comes with very specific directions to reiterate all that Jesus Christ has done and spoke. He is not acting independently or unilaterally of the Father and the Son. He's acting in concert with the Father and the Son. He is empowering. He inspired the individuals to write the Word of God as he did. He gives gifts as he so chooses to give when he chooses to give for the edification of the body of Christ. He is the one leading us in all truth. He is the one that surrounds our heart to bring about conviction within our conscience. He is the one that gives us hope and peace that surpasses all understanding. It is the Spirit of God that is working in you to sanctify you, separate you from the world, and to prepare you and to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that is doing that work within us. And the arrival of the Holy Spirit and them being filled with the Holy Spirit was the beginning of the church. And therefore, I deduce that it must be a central point of the existence of the church. That he must be preeminent within the church. Now we're going to get into what that looks like in just a moment. But we know that the Holy Spirit allows for us to live above and beyond our natural existence in the new life in which God has given us. The Bible says that there are three relationships a person can have with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus outlined two of those in John 14, 17, when he said that the Spirit of God will dwell with you, para, and then the Spirit of God will be in you, en, in the Greek. Two different words used there to show two different relationships. Before you and I were believers in in Jesus Christ, I believe the Spirit of God was working alongside of the Word of God, penetrating our hearts, our minds, and opening our eyes to the truth of the reality of the gospel, and He was with us. Then, when we became believers in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God came in us, E-N. And it was a down payment, as Paul articulates in Ephesians chapter 1. He, it was an earnest, meaning that the Spirit of God has been given to us to show that we are truly a child of God. And then Jesus, when speaking with the disciples in John 20, breathed upon them and they received the Spirit of God within them, the second relationship. And yet even in that state, they still, after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, were willing to go back to their old lives. They didn't know what to do going forward. Until, of course, the resurrection of Jesus and things then began to become clearer to them. And when they gathered outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, Jesus then spoke to them and said, in light of their question, is now the time of the arrival of the kingdom of God? And of course, he doesn't answer that question directly, but then moves to the fact that still there was work yet to be done here on this earth. And to do that work and to empower them for that work, it was necessary that the Spirit of God come upon them. The third relationship, epi in the Greek. Some call this experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that in Acts chapter 2, this is when the church was baptized in the Spirit, in a sense immersed in Him, and therefore the Spirit was now working uh, in and through the church in in His dynamic way. But going on from there, there's another term used called the filling of the Holy Spirit, which I believe that once someone is a Christian, they receive the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God dwells within them. However, though, it is possible that at times after that, as in the book of Acts, individuals are filled with the Holy Spirit for the purposes of fulfilling the ministry in which God has called them to. There's a dynamic book, if you've ever read it, called They Found the Secret. And it talks about heroes of the Christian faith before and after discovering that third relationship of being filled with the Spirit. I would greatly encourage you to read it Because one here in Chicago named D.L. Moody, his whole ministry changed after that. Now, there are many who want to argue semantics about this filling of the Spirit. There are some that want to say that it all happens just when we are saved and so forth. But I believe that's inconsistent with the pattern in which the Scripture gives us. Even John Stott, the conservative that he is, wrote when he said that the book of Acts should be called the book of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ through God's people. Meaning that if you want to know what a spirit-led church looks like, you should look to the book of Acts. And I agree with that. And that being said, I believe that we see that individuals were filled with the Spirit numerous times through that book. And it's something that we should welcome and understand that God can do for us for the purpose of the fulfilling of the ministries that he's called us, the service that he has called us to. 
Now, when the Spirit of God first comes in you as a believer in Jesus Christ, well, let's back up one step further. When the Spirit of God is alongside of you, He's working in the conscience of the individual, and He's working in three ways. To convict the individual of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So as you and I are bringing the gospel to our friends and family who do not know the Lord, and we'd like to see them come to saving faith in the Lord and enjoy eternity with Him, and experience the new life that you're currently experiencing, you should begin your evangelistic endeavors with prayer that the Holy Spirit would begin to open their eyes and open their hearts to the truth. Because they have been blinded by the ruler of this world. Their hearts are darkened. They don't understand their necessity. And so what God does to help them discover that necessity is convicts their heart. Convicts their heart of sin, showing them that they have fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. Of righteousness, that Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God. And in and through Him alone can salvation be obtained. And then number three, of judgment. That the ruler of this world has been judged. John 16. And that we no longer need to walk under the burden of the flesh and of the ruler of this world, but in a new life that God is capable of providing for us. See, our evangelistic endeavors, which we'll talk about next time, work hand in hand with what the Spirit of God is doing. See, we don't need to create a plan and then ask God to come aboard our plan. We need to discover His plan and then get aboard it and move forward with it. Now, that means we may not be the largest church in the neighborhood. It may mean that we don't have the the greatest amenities and so forth. That's all up to God. But what we will have is a confidence that we're doing what God has led us to do. And that's a confidence I can live with. Because in the uncertainties of the world, standing on that confidence is sometimes the only thing you have to stand upon. So after an individual then comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God then dwells within them. And dwelling within them, they are now allowing for the new creation to take place. And as that new creation is taking place through sanctification, that's the outward manifestation of that work within the individual, the Holy Spirit begins to identify that person as a child of God by the fruit in which they bear. Paul made it clear that in Galatians chapter 5 that the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in the life of the individual that is uncharacteristic of the natural man and indications that they are a new creation in Christ. And I'm sure that you've all seen, uh, of course, the Veggie Tales and have memorized this verse when it talks about uh, the work that God is doing in you. In Galatians chapter 5, if you turn there with me, I'd like you to notice this. Because as one with the Spirit within them, and of course parallel this with Ephesians 1, notice what Paul says here about this. Beginning in verse 16, of chapter 5, he states, 
But I say now, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry and sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy and drunkenness, orgies, and these things alike. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who manifest these things uh, on a continuous basis demonstrate that they are not in Christ. But he goes on in verse 22, says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now if we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited or provoking one another and envying one another. As a Christian grows in Christ, they grow from the inside out. And as God is renewing them on the inside, eventually that renewal takes place on the outside. Allowing us to cease those things that we did before we were Christians and we enjoyed and we were possibly in bondage to, this alleviates that bondage and allows us to walk in the newness of life. So when a Christian comes to me and they say, Pastor, I'm struggling with this area of my flesh, my old life. What shall I do? And I tell them the same thing each and every time. If you want to overcome the flesh, then feed the Spirit. Feed the Spirit, grow within the Spirit, and allow the Spirit to contend with that area of your flesh. Well, how do I do that? Well, by prayer and reading of the Word of God, by being in fellowship, serving one another, worshiping God, etc. These things will feed the Spirit, allowing you to overcome those areas of the flesh that may have dogged you since the time you got saved. But then there's a third relationship. When the Spirit becomes upon the individual, overflowing. Where supernatural things seem to take place within the life of the believer. And as a result, they are given power. This is exactly what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And he said to them, when they asked about, is now the time of the coming of the kingdom of God? He says, it is not known for you the times or seasons that the Father has fixed for his own authority. But you will receive power, dudamis, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is going to give you the ability to fulfill the mission in which I am setting you forth upon. And of course, the apostles had this unique way of doing uh, ministry, obviously to uh, substantiate their authority and the word in which they gave. But 
in the book of Acts, the filling of the Spirit is not simply confined to the apostles, but others experienced it also. Even Paul, when writing to the Ephesians, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It is something for all believers. And it is something that God gives as that believer is in need of it. Nothing wrong with seeking it. Nothing wrong with asking for it. In fact, Jesus made that clear, right? He says, he who, you know, you who are evil know how to give good things to your children. How much more does your heavenly father know to give to you? If you ask for bread, are you going to give him a stone? If he asks for, uh, I forgot what the second one is, you're going to give him a, scorp- a snake or a scorpion. And then Jesus goes, if you ask of your heavenly father, he shall give you the Holy Spirit. Right there in Luke. This is one of the aspects that I think is greatly missing in the church today. Individuals waiting on the Lord for this empowerment upon them. God made it clear in the Old Testament that the work that he was going to do here on this earth was not going to be work at the hands of man through the endeavors of the flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Zechariah, in the building of the temple, God made it clear, it's not going to be by might nor by power, but by my spirit that this is going to be accomplished. Of course, the psalmist records it even uh, more directly. He says, unless the Lord build a house, the house shall be built in vain. And of course, in the book of Acts, the very last verse of chapter 2, we find that day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It's a work of God from start to finish. The Holy Spirit's role within the church is undeniable. As Paul clearly articulated in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And that in everything he might be preeminent. If he is the body, then the Holy Spirit is the one who knits it all together, the head with the body. And allows the supernatural actions to take place within and through the life of the believer. And as we understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, I believe that the church will begin to manifest certain qualities that will keep it safe as it progresses in its growth, as it matures in its age. The understanding of the Holy Spirit properly within a congregation will lead to individuals uniquely being empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministries in which they have to edify the body of Christ. In our culture today, we have to be very careful that we don't bring what I call the big box mentality into the church. That the church is simply here to provide everything that I need. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy said this about our nation, don't seek how the nation can serve you, but how you can serve the nation. I'm very concerned that many when coming to church, they have a consumer mentality and they're looking for the church to meet all of their needs. Rather, they should be considering where and how shall God use me amongst the body here at my church for his glorification that I may serve him and bless others. Secondly, individuals gifted by the Holy Spirit then 
will be individually gifted and they will therefore accomplish and fulfill the ministries that God wants to do in and through the church. And thirdly, individuals therefore, if they are being empowered, if they are being gifted, will seek to always be led by the Spirit. Well, how is one led by the Spirit of God? It seems subjective. I don't think it is. I notice that when I read the New Testament, there is a synergy between the Holy Spirit and the church that was undeniable and unseparable. It just worked, right? It it was so powerful that by the time Acts chapter 5 came about, and Ananias and Sapphira came in with the uh, appearance that they were giving all that they had gained from the selling of one of their lands, proclaimed to all that they had given all and or that they had gained from the selling of their land, but yet Peter calls them out and demonstrates that they were actually lying, to, and he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then Ananias was struck down dead. Now there's a spirit-filled church, Right? Hey, did you hear about that church over there? Yeah, they're spirit-filled. Well, how do you know? A guy died. Whoa. And then the wife comes in just shortly after that, and she says the same thing. And Peter says, really? You too? Boom. Dies right there. Scholars, when they comment on this portion of Scripture, believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit was so powerful in the church at that time that such hypocrisy could not be uh, gotten away with. And there was a purity to the church at that time. That's a scary thought if you really think about it, isn't it? To have the Holy Spirit that prevalent within a church. But as things continue, notice the way Paul, notice the way Peter, James, Jude, all refer- there's this relationship between them and the Spirit that was undeniable. It was so natural. It was like they couldn't even comprehend or consider proceeding forward without the Holy Spirit's guidance. They were dependent on the Spirit of God. And there's nothing wrong with being codependent when it comes to the Spirit of God. I'm completely dependent on the Spirit of God. And the church moved forward in such a dynamic way. It had problems. It had tribulations. And when you read the book of Acts, one of the mistakes we make when we read the book of Acts and we go through the 28 chapters of it is we say, oh my goodness, it was so powerful. Things were happening. People were getting saved. People were getting raised from the dead. People were falling out windows because the Bible study was going too long. And then Paul laid on them and they got up again. And they went, you know what they did? They went back to the Bible study again, you know. But the book of Acts is 30 years recorded for us. Not 30 days, 30 years. I mean, our church is only entering the 23rd year of its existence. The book of Acts in those 28 chapters, Luke covers 30 years of the church's existence. So spread it out a little bit. But these are the things that were happening. These things were the things that were taking place. Paul, in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, he said this. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A spirit-filled church will manifest itself in this way. Number one, I believe that their supernatural activity will take place. Now, how is that evidence? Well, it may be somebody getting healed. It, it, it may be uh, somebody coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that the conversion of one individual is one of the greatest miracles that will take place within the midst of that church. But there will be a supernatural ability. Now, when Paul, I'm sorry, when Jesus told them about being powered empowered for being witnesses. The word witness there in the Greek is more along the lines of the word martyr. It's one who is willing to lay down their life to proclaim their faith in God, to substantiate their faith in God, to validate their faith in God. Meaning that they're, even though their life is threatened, they are willing to say, okay, take my life, but I'm not going to deny my Savior. I believe that the Holy Spirit allows us to be witnesses by the fact that we can now die to ourselves and live in the new creation in which God has provided for us, and therefore being witnesses to all the world. Now, we're not better than anybody else, but we are saved, and we should be able to be witnesses We need to be ambassadors for Jesus here in this world, and the only way we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, being led by the Holy Spirit will contrast that to the leading and the driving of the flesh. In the late 1990s, one of the most um, horrible compromises, I think, took place here in the church in America. As we talked about on Wednesday, the pure stream of what God was doing was being polluted by philosophies and ideas uh, by runoff streams into the main river. Um, In the 1990s, the church decided to take on more of a business model. And so they became incorporated and they, they acted and operated more as a corporation than as a church. They would, you know, have elders, but then executive boards. They would call CEOs, CFOs, COOs, and so forth. Conferences used to be initially Christians who were um, very successful in the business community, and these individuals would be, you know, limelighted in these conferences and brought about in pastors' conferences to help pastors become good leaders. But do you know, eventually, they moved from Christian business people to just successful business people who weren't even Christian. And then justified it by saying, notice the biblical principles that they have stumbled upon and how we can apply them into our particular endeavor. Now, when you are a large church and you are handling a large amount of people and a large amount of uh, paperwork and administrative issues and funds, some business practices may be appropriate. To keep an individual and the, and the organization accountable. Billy Graham was one of the first ones who started adopting some of these principles, but not to the expense of the leading of God within his ministry. 
But along with that, the ideas started changing. Instead of looking to plant churches, one church in our area actually had a conference on how to franchise the church. Think of that word there for a moment, like a McDonald's or an Arby's or KFC or whatever would be franchised. Instead of praying and seeking God on how they should uh, minister to the community and letting the Spirit open the doors, they began to have planning sessions. And instead of sticking to their statement of faith, they came up with a business plan. And this became very detrimental to the growth of the church. Now, the church grew, but unfortunately, the lasting impact of that growth was this. As one church here in our area stated that after they had planted several satellite locations, that they now were comfortable to say that they had 40% of the Christian market share within the area. Wow, I thought these were people that we were talking about. And then, of course, it came to the giving and so on and so forth. The leading of the Holy Spirit will take our relying upon the flesh out of our, our wheelhouse and it'll give us the perspective that it's not what I bring to the table that matters, but what God does in and through me. And this will lead me, number three, to instead of looking to have programs, projects, and planning meetings, prayer meetings will be emphasized as we are waiting upon and the Holy Spirit, which is number four. Waiting on trusting on Him rather than rushing ahead. Now, I will be honest with you. In our endeavors to wait on God, we have often been accused of indecisiveness. We've often been accused of a lack of initiative. But I'm not comfortable venturing out into something and throwing all this money behind it before I know that God is actually in it. For example, when we first obtained this building, there were many in our church that wanted to help homeless and feed homeless and so forth. Of course, we care about homeless people. But the village didn't allow us to create the kitchen environment to do that on a regular basis. They wanted us to put thousands of dollars into it. And it's just something we couldn't have done. But as we waited on God, in 2017, the youth group is exploding here at this church. And it's from people from all other churches. We could never have done this. We have nothing to offer them. We have no lights. We have no gimmicks. We have no games. It's us sitting on a couch with the Bible. And every two weeks they come and they come. Look on Facebook. We just kicked it off for this year. Look at, look at the number of kids that are coming here. They have their own worship band and the whole nine yards. I don't know what God's doing, but I could have never constructed this. I could have never planned this, but God's doing something. Waiting on God is one of the hardest things to do, but yet it's a necessary component if we are going to be led by the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit of God, there's also natural growth in the life of the believers. It's organic rather than, it's for, rather than being forced. There are some in the body of Christ that believes that simply asking one to conform to rules and regulations is righteousness. But Jesus made it abundantly clear that you can, be, you can look like you're conforming to rules and righteousness on the outside, but your heart can be far from them. 
And so what we're looking for is actual transformation. Now, this sometimes takes longer, doesn't it? If you are jonesing for a good orange right now, you have two choices, don't you? After church, you can go home and plant an orange seed and be patient, right? And eventually, you're going to get an orange. I don't know if you're going to want it by that time, but eventually you'll get it, right? The other option is to run to Jewel and just grab one and go. That's the mentality that we are all subjected to. Just grab it and go. But true organic growth in the life of people doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process. And this is why I say that we must be patient and gracious with one another because we are all works in progress. And we must take time with one another. Next in our list, a manifestation of a spirit-led church is that I find that a spirit-led church, a balanced spirit-led church, a church that is truly being led by the spirit of the Bible will be a church of the Bible because he inspired this word for us and the ultimate authority in all things that God has put forward. And number six, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit will bring about personal holiness in the people's lives. As we are convicted, we have two responses to that conviction. We can resist it or we can receive it. Resisting it will cause our heart to get hard. It'll cause us to uh, be able to resist the power of the, uh, the conviction of the Spirit the next time more easily. Or receiving it will create within us a greater sensitivity to the Spirit. And that's what I see in the individuals of the New Testament, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit within their conscience. Notice with me how many times Paul talks about his clear conscience before God. And as a result, he was able to move more freely knowing that he had that clear conscience before God. I believe that the Holy Spirit and our sensitivity to him is found in the arena of our conscience. And the more one is obedient and led by him and convic- you know, uh, you know, um, receive the conviction that he brings about, that sensitivity grows. Now, I know that may sound subjective, but let me state that the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit is always in the context of the Bible. And so as he is leading you, if you feel led, you're standing in, the, in an aisle at a grocery store, and you just feel led to start a conversation with the person behind you, take that step out in faith. Who knows what kind of a witnessing opportunity that might bring about. If you're, you know, if you're doing something, you're watching TV, and it's a program that you know in your heart you really shouldn't be watching, but it's so popular, and everybody who seems to be anybody is watching it, and you want to be cool with them. But your heart is saying, you know what? This is not something you should be putting before your eyes. Turn it off. Turn it off and allow that conviction to have its perfect work in you. Personal holiness before the Lord. And lastly, and I think this sums it all up, in a truly spirit-led church, Jesus and the gospel will be center point in all that the church does. Why is that? Because in John 14, 16, He makes it clear that when the Holy Spirit comes, I am here to 
say to you everything that, this, that Jesus has said to me. In fact, let's look at it for ourselves because many don't understand this dynamic of the Spirit. I did. Yes, thank you. Chapter 16 in verse, verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where you are going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Notice what he says now in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will deliver uh, and will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is of mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So one of the things I look for in a church that claims to be a spirit-led church is, is Jesus the center of all things? In truth and in the, the encompass of the gospel. I like what Greg Laurie said, and I'd like to read this in closing to you this morning. He says, so we need to say, Lord, is there no way we can impact our culture in our own strength? We can't do it through programs, he says. We can't do it through gimmicks. We can't do it through our own devices. We need a power beyond ourselves. We need to be like that little straw thrust into a telephone pole by the power of the hurricane. Lord, we are flimsy. We are weak. We cannot do it on our own. But with your power behind us, launching us into this culture, we can make a difference. That's the power that we need within our lives today. The power of the Holy Spirit, an undeniable asset in the body of Christ. Next week, we're going to be moving into evangelism and showing how the Holy Spirit worked within evangelism to bring 3,000 individuals to Jesus Christ. So next week, we're going to be talking about what it means to evangelize and how to evangelize and so forth.